Things Are Getting Strange, an X-Files Rewatch podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Kim. And uh, today we're going to do a kind of an introduction and also we're going to talk about Pilot. But I think first, just in case for some reason you're listening to this and you don't know what the X-Files is, which is, uh, well, maybe you're interested. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure why you'd be listening if you didn't already know, but let's assume that you might not be. Okay, so The X-Files is a 90s TV series created and conceived by Chris Carter. Uh, his major inspiration, allegedly, was a report that 3.7 million Americans might have been abducted by aliens, which seems an awfully high figure, but what do I know? 3.7 million. Well, I'm going on that basis there are more than 3.7 million people in America, so at least there's that. Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a proportion of the population. I mean, I probably should have actually checked what the proportion of the population is, but it still seems really high mm. for something that's uh, got not a lot of physical proof. When we see that statistic, though, that's not on the same day. <laughs> no, I no. presume this is a, over the course of history, yeah, I, that I, amount of Americans. Well, yes, I hope so, anyway. It'd be very worrying if that was over the course of a day. But yes, yeah, so this is one of his major inspirations. The other inspiration was things like Contract Night, Stalker, um, Thin Blue Line, which I've not actually heard of, Prime Suspect, which is a UK programme I've not seen but I have heard of, which is an odd one in there, uh, Twilight Zone, Science of the Lambs, which I think is particularly notable for like the, the typewritten uh, locations that come up. Because mm. that's exactly the same as how Science of the Lambs has it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Twin Peaks, which is not really a surprise, given it also deals with the FBI and investigating paranormal activity with a kind of kooky FBI guy. Also, David Duchovny was in that series as a um, transgender FBI agent. Yep, true. And then resumed the role in the most recent series. Classic Gathers of the Third Kind. Raised the Lost Ark, which I think is notable for one thing in this episode only. True, yep. <laughs> and the one that I thought most, most interesting uh, was The Avengers. I'm going to hasten to add, not the Marvel Avengers, The Avengers, the UK TV series with Emma Peel and John Steed. Oh, of course. And apparently this was because he want, uh, Chris Carter wanted a platonic relationship between the two leads. We'll see how long that lasts. We'll see how long that lasts. And we should also note that we're going to try and do this going forward through the series as if we have never seen it before. So we're going to try and keep our foreknowledge to the minimum, even though we are pretty sure where the series is going to go. But we're going to try and take it as a week-by-week episode. Yeah, treat it more like this is our first time viewing the series and we have no idea the trajectory this conspiracy is going to take. And we're going to try and extrapolate the um, the shape of the conspiracy from what we get each week and then we're trying to build it up into something coherent. Although, to be fair, we don't actually know there's a conspiracy yet. We get I mean, there's hints of a conspiracy, I think. No, there's definitely a conspiracy in this episode. There's a conspiracy. Okay, there, there is um, stuff going on. Do we want to talk about how we first saw this? I mean... I certainly saw this earlier than you, I know that for a fact, because I watched it when it went out on the BBC for the first time on the 19th of September, 1994. Oh, so you were in there from the pilot. I was in there from the pilot. I want to say that I knew it was in the works and uh, there was some buzz about it being a big thing. Um, I want to say it was either SFX or Starlog sort of alerted me to its presence and it's coming. And the BBC obviously ran trailers as it got closer to the time and it was a big thing when it came to school. But despite the fact I would have been 14 at this time, uh, I was not allowed to step and watch it when it actually went out. So I had to tape it and watch it the next day. <laughs> Which I did for a lot, of the, a lot of the first season, and then I think I must have been like close to 15, and then parents didn't care so much, so then I started watching them as they went out on 9 o'clock on BBC Two. So I started watching it from the start. It, used to, it was, series one at least, was a big thing in school, and everyone was watching it. I don't think that lasted that long. I think a lot of people fell off of it. Mm. There was a lot of conspiracy talk at the start, and then people just stopped talking about it and faded out. 
But I'm much more interested because you came into the Exiles for a completely different route, or at least much, much later. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when it first aired in the UK, by your just reckoning, I would have only been seven. So therefore, was not on the bandwagon from the beginning. I, I don't know, I'm going to interject here, though, but given the fact there is a middle-grade light novel of the X-Files episode one, there seems to be no reason why you uh, couldn't yes, have Yes, I will this. come into that. That is how I found the X-Files, is uh, my school library had a lot of the middle-grade and young adult novels. So I had read a bunch of the kind of more popular Monster of the Week episodes before I came in. But the first episode I saw was actually two or three episodes into season five. Uh, the episode was called Detour. So we're not going to get to that one for a long time. No, series five is a way off at this point. But then, yeah, when the BBC started re-airing older series, maybe I watched about season five or six and then got to watch the first four seasons again after that point. Okay. So I saw them in reverse order. Not, not the best way. So I'm, I'm curious then, what was it like coming to see the pilot after jumping in much further on? I know you've read the novelization, but what was it like actually going back to the start? I mean, did you see the threads of future things coming in or was it kind of a weird microcosm? It's kind of a weird microcosm because although we'll get to it a lot later, the conspiracy in season five is very different. And those kind yeah. of threads that make the conspiracy don't come in until maybe about the third season. So when you're watching the first couple of seasons again, it just feels like the conspiracy is going in a completely different direction. But I'm sure that's something we'll notice when we kind of come to it. Quite possibly, uh, as we try and figure out what what are the aliens. And we we don't actually in the official know they are aliens yet. We think they're aliens. It seems, well, Mulder's convinced they're aliens anyway. It's it's very plausible they are aliens given what they end up doing. Okay. So that's how we first discovered the X-Files. And so we rewatched the episode one or... Actually, it's, it's episode one, but it's also episode two. This is the pilot. So uh, in case anyone is unfamiliar with this concept, uh, pilots are usually the test first episodes of TV shows. They may or may not constitute the first actual episode of the series. I'm actually blanking on any good examples where the pilot wasn't done. Actually, I think Buffy. Buffy had a pilot that shares some of the actors and some of the plot from the first episode, but is not actually the same thing. In contrast to that, things like Star Trek Next Generation and Counter at Farpoint was the pilot, and that formed the basis of the start of the series. And the Exiles pilot is also um, considered episode one. A lot of people at the time, to my to my memory, did try to work out what pilot meant and if it had any sign of bearing on the on the actual story. They didn't realize that this concept occurred. Because some pilots are labelled pilot and some labels aren't. This one actually just is called pilot. Well, the title of the middle grade novel for this one is X Marks the Spot. Yeah, which is probably a more appropriate, not more appropriate title, but it sort of means more. But it then it fits can... in with the episode, all the kind of iconography of Mulder painting X's on street <laughs> yeah. corners and things like that. But then also, um, the middle, a lot of middle grade novels have changed the titles, though, haven't they? There's a number of them. Yeah, a number of the ones coming up. It's made them quite hard to locate when I've been trying to buy them up for the purposes of this kind of podcast. But yeah, this is the first one that bears a different title. Yeah. So I do, I do remember um, the, back in the day that there was a discussion in amongst my friend group, which was trying to make out that pilot might refer to something within the series. So the fact that Anne will get to the much later that one of the characters involved with the alien conspiracy so was in fact the pilot of the flying saucer. That was their logic. I see. Their logical yeah. jump there. Yeah, I can see it. Okay. So some quick notes about the pilot before we get into it. Uh, this was directed by Robert Mandel and written by Chris Carter. The original air date was almost exactly one year prior to the BBC Two first broadcast, which was the 10th of September 1993. The notable guest stars on this one, at least notable to us because admittedly we have slightly <laughs> weird uh, fixations at times, were Cliff DeYoung, who I've also seen in Shock Treatment playing Brad Majors. 
obscure. Yeah, he was also in the craft. I think he's the uh, lead character's dad. I've got him down as Mr. Mr. Bailey. Mr. Bailey, that's Mr. right. Bailey. Uh, the other insignificant guest star is William P. Davis, who is credited as the Smoking Man. He was in Stephen King's It. He's the principal of the high school. Yep, that's right. But he was also in the film The Messengers, with the really unhelpful ghosts who decide the best way to communicate with people is by injuring people. That would have been later on, though. That was much later on, yes. That was, was post-X-Files. Okay, so are we ready to get into the episode itself? Okay, uh, let's start just by giving a brief synopsis of this first episode. Um, I'll do this one if you want. You can I'll take next those. time. Yep. So Agent Dana Scully is a experienced medical doctor. She teaches in the FBI Academy. She's been assigned to report on another agent, Fox Mulder, who is this renowned psychoanalyst. Mulder has become more and increasingly interested in late of working on what is known as the X-Files, which is what the FBI refer to as their kind of unsolvable cases. Uh, she's commissioned by Division Chief Blevins, who, when he first is met by Scully, is accompanied by William B. Davis's Smoking Man character, who just stands unspeaking in the corner of the office. Her job is to build a case against Mulder, essentially, by honestly reporting what she sees. The FBI officers evidently intending the fact that she will be posting this kind of scathing report that posts what Mulder is doing as being pointless to the FBI. Yeah, and um, possibly get him assigned back to what they weren't doing with the psychoanalysis of um, psychopaths, really. Yes, it's established early in the episode that Mulder has had great success in this. It's just not yeah. something that actually interests him in any way. Mulder introduces Scully to this case that's taking place in Oregon. Recently, a teenager has died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, she's been found dead in the woods in a state of partial undress. On investigation of her body, it's linked to a string of other cases. There have been at least three others before her. And uh, two other locations across the country. In two other locations across the country, correct. But this particular one, the coroner who kind of autopsied the previous three is on holiday... So a new guy has picked up interesting things in this case. The most noticeable is she has two small round marks that look a bit like bug bites in the middle of her back. And the tissue around them has some kind of unidentified substance within it. Uh, this has led Mulder to believe that there is something kind of insidious about this particular death. On the way over to visit them, Scully already begins to experience these strange phenomena. There's kind of odd unexplained turbulence on the plane, the radio interference within their car... They have an experience of lost time, which we'll get into a bit later, which results in Mulder painting an X on the street corner, which probably where the title for the young adult novel of this came from. When they manage to get permission to exhume one of the previous graves of the victims, they find this non-human corpse within it. I think it's identified within the episode as possibly being a chimpanzee. Yes, if you a, believe, a mammal of some kind. A mammal of some kind, anyhow. But it has a, a metal nasal implant, which they can't identify. They visit two of the surviving class members, all of these previous victims belonging to the same high school class. They are both kind of staying in a psychiatric hospital, following what is believed to be a car accident. Uh, one of them has been left in a waking coma, a persistent vegetative state, while the other girl is in a wheelchair and has been spending a lot of time reading to him and taking care of him. Uh, while they are there, the girl has an odd episode when Mulder speaks to her, and Scully notices that she also has the marks on her back. Which Mulder expected to find. Yes, that's true. Mulder did expect to find this, though Scully does not fully understand why. Throughout the episode, weird things continue happening. The most notable is Scully finding marks on her own back and thinking that this is somehow connected. But it turns out hers genuinely are bug bites. While we're investigating these 
this case, Mulder comes to believe that perhaps other people within the community are in on it. Predominantly, there is the chief detective is the father of Billy Miles, who was the boy in the hospital bed. And also the coroner, uh, coroner? Coroner. The coroner is a father of another girl from that class who's called Teresa, who approaches Mulder because she's very worried and very fearful that she's going to be the next to be killed. Yeah. Coroner is your frog. Coroner is my frog, yes. Coroner is the word <laughs> I've got to learn how to say for this, because I imagine it's going to be coming up a lot. So anyway, as Scully is researching this and started building and putting together all this weird evidence that doesn't seem to fit... They have a bit of a disaster where somebody tortures their hotel room and seemingly destroys all the evidence they have gathered to this point, much to Mulder's fury. Bizarrely, this leads Mulder to make a huge jump in conclusions, and he seemingly plucks out of nowhere the fact that Billy Miles in the hospital bed must be responsible for these killings in some way. Yeah, it, there is a, a strange sense that Mulder has read the script, because it's not clear how he got to this conclusion. He does. They do find corroborating evidence, it must be said, which we'll get to, but that comes after the conclusion. Yep. It leads to them looking at this kid in bed and finding he has dirt under his toenails, which should be impossible given he can't walk. It's also a direct match for the substance that Scully finds in the woods. So that's However, they can't review it because of the lost evidence. This leads to a chase through the woods where they do indeed manage to find Billy Miles walking and lucid, carrying uh, the girl Teresa in his arms. His father, who seemingly expected this to happen, manages to corner him and is about to shoot him when he's tackled by Mulder. Scully sees none of this because she is a bit further back in the woods at the time and therefore all she sees is a bright light. As the light fades, the girl is okay. Billy Miles is lucid and awake once again, though very emaciated and can't really remember what's been going on. Beyond the fact, he tells them in an interview, which is watched by Blevins and the other FBI agents at the end, that he remembers their graduation party when all of them were first abducted and that he's been being used to round people up. Yeah, I would inject that was under hypnosis. He remembered that. Oh, was he, he, under he was under hypnosis? I did not realise that, actually. I think the book makes it clearer, but when they saw the uh, guy in the interview room is asking to raise his left hand, it's that, that's he's under hypnosis. So oh, just right. Funny. There you yeah. are. You picked up something I didn't. Well done. Okay. That's why we're watching these together. It is. This leads to Scully reporting that, although her report doesn't make a lot of sense, really the case didn't make a lot of sense and they couldn't collaborate a lot of these evidence or find rational causes. When asked if she has proof, she does show that she actually retained the little metal device that was in the corpse's nose. The uh, that had been in her pocket at the time, so had not been consumed by the flames. In the final scenes, we see the FBI agents discussing this and concerned about the fact that Scully hasn't managed to close everything up neatly. Well, I think that's actually, I think that's a part in the book, in the actual episode, basically, Scully hands a report in the Mulder reports that it's gone missing. Ah, okay, yep, yeah. I'm getting the two mixed up. We'll talk about the book later. Yep. That's not in the book. Scully hands in a report, Mulder says it's gone missing, and in the closing scenes, we see the smoking man, who I'm going to refer from this point on by his moniker of Cancer Man, because it rolls off the tongue better, but the smoking man going into this archive within the Pentagon and filing the nasal implant with a bunch of other ones in there, possibly inferring that he's the one who's been destroying evidence through the course of this episode. Yes. The episode ends, and that was the X-Files pilot. Self on top, what, uh, so what notes have you got on this episode? Oh, I have all the notes on well, this episode. Yeah, I have a lot of notes too. I mean, okay, so... I've been talking for a bit. Do you want to make a start? I, I can make a start. I mean, the, the very first thing I've got to say is, um, at the very start of the episode, there's a caption saying, the following is based on actual documented events, which it puts me in mind of how Fargo starts with the whole. This is based on. This is also based on actual events. 
got to assume, based on what you said before, though, that our actual events are these 3.7 million abductions in the UK. I mean, that's your sort basis. Of, sort of. I mean, actually, there is, I can't remember where I read this, but there was a bit more that we were into it. And for those who aren't aware as well, that Fargo infamously starts with a captain saying that the following is based on true events. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the actors went to the Coen brothers when reading some script and said, can I read some more about the actual case in order to uh, research this more and prepare? And they said, there isn't a real case. We made it all up. And he said, but it says in the script, this is based on actual events. He said, no, that's a lie. Turns out there's no restriction for you actually saying the following is based on true events if it's not true. <laughs> so the X-Files does, the X-Files, this isn't actually the X-Files intent. They weren't actually intended to do that. But I think Chris Carter was asked about this. And individual parts of this have been documented. There's no case like the X-Files pilot, because you'd think that'd be much like the fourth kind film. If you had any of this evidence, you'd think that's kind of a slam dunk. Aliens exist. True. But, yeah, there's... Uh, so individual parts of, like, the, the implants, like the strange marks, lost time, the um, sleepwalking into the woods and everything, these individual things have happened or been documented in actual alien abduction kind of scenarios, but not all of them together, because that would be a bit much. It's interesting the X-Files opens with that. It's kind of misleading already, but it's a compelling point and also a way to unnerve the audience to a degree with the whole, this couldn't really be happening. It also, I thought, in terms of just because I'm going to end up talking a lot about TV production, I realise here, uh, is the fact that the episode doesn't have a cold open. And for those who don't know what a cold open is, cold open is anything that happens before the credits roll. And it turns out that anything that happens after the credits roll, uh, the end credits, sorry, is called a tag. Okay. So two things. Uh, but cold open, uh, the X-Files traditionally will have cold opens going forward. Mm. I think we, no, it's not actually a troublesome to, real, to reveal that. But this one does not. But the first scene with the um, the death of Karen Swenson and the sheriff's finding her the next morning functions perfectly as a cold open would for later episodes of the X Files. I suppose usually it's your before ad break thing, yeah. whereby there'd be a death to get people interested. Yeah, and then you call for all the credit. Well, no, you roll the, in America you roll the credits, then you have an ad break because it's, it just seems insane. It should be noted that ad breaks don't work the same in the UK, especially um, on the BBC. The BBC doesn't actually have them, so we would not have had these breaks when we saw it. Other channels do, but. Usually not quite as regularly as in American no. productions. I think they usually get about two ad breaks and in an hour. Stuff. In an hour program, would that be? Yeah. Whereas in the UK, minutes. you might just get one in the middle or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that kind of thing. So we, we've got a, a technically a, a cold open, but not actually really cold open. I mean, one thing we could get to because just this is Scully's career, which is really weird. Oh, ask me questions about Scully's degree. I. I... I love Scully's degree. I think we should know that we've got we picked up some of this from what she says in the episode and what happens in the novella because the novella implies a different way round. It should it possibly be noted here that the novella states at the start it's based on the teleplay, so it's not actually a recreation of the episode. It's the recreation of an earlier script. Therefore, it contains scenes that are different or don't even happen in the finished episode. Yes, including the ones with Scully's boyfriend, which is one of those weird things that that's, this existed at one point and he was cut completely out. Yeah, he actually appears a couple of times he in does. the novella. The novella tells you that she has an undergraduate in physics and she was actually specialising in astronomy. She originally wanted to work for NASA and then somehow has become a medical doctor. The TV show doesn't mention any of the astronomy degree, which is kind of interesting as it fits in a bit more with Mulder's interests. 
but it does mention that she was a physics undergrad. She actually wrote her thesis on Einstein's twin paradox, I think it tells you. Einstein's twin paradox? Yep, but then she's become a medical doctor. (laughs) So I think it's in the um, Hollywood belief that all of the sciences are essentially the same science. But it should be noticed that Scully was a kind of absolute icon when this came out, and it encouraged girls in particular to go into STEM subjects. Yes. So it is great that Scully can do all the science as it has led to this. I do have to just point out that it encouraged one of my friends to get into forensic pathology. Oh, he did then. not last with it because <laughs> I don't think he was quite prepared for what the forensic pathology actually involves. Oh dear! But he did uh, start on a university course for that and gave up pretty sharpish. The other thing to really note is that building Scully as the science person not only is it interesting because traditionally that's a kind of male role to play in something and not the female one. But also, it turns Scully into Dr. Watson against Mulder Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and um, this was a point I had as well, is the fact that the structure of Pilot is actually kind of interesting, because it, aside from the cold open equivalent section, it is effectively like a Sherlock Holmes story where you get Scully's viewpoint of events up until a point, because the episode kind of has that right until the Almost last minute. It's where it the bit it. I noticed where Scully doesn't see anything. That's yeah. the one bit you get Mulder's perspective in the episode. Yeah, so it's it's a very it's oh, it's very much a case of this is almost a Sherlock Holmes. We're going to get Watson's view of this, so we're not going to get Mulder's thinking process, which explains an awful lot for his logical leaps, which are worse than Holmes because I think Holmes you will usually stop and explain how he got there. Oh, Mulder does not. Mulder explain. does not explain. How Mulder he got has there. read the script. Mulder even says in the episodes to kind of cement this home thing, he has a kind of, I forget how he words it exactly, but he basically gives Holmes's eliminated the impossible speech. Yes, he did. Which, as you note, it's kind of very interesting. The fact that Mulder doesn't really eliminate the impossible, he just homes in on it and decides that that's the answer he's going to <laughs> yes, give in the, this situation. The, the impossible one of his one. I mean, I, I kind of like, so the interesting thing I think about the, how the dynamic starts is, he's got, just going into his office, um, has, and He's known she was on the way, I think, because he's prepared the slideshow, because there's no reason for him to have that slideshow ready unless he knows she's coming down. Mm. So someone at least has told him, you're getting an assistant, or you're getting a partner assigned to you. He must know who it is as well, because he manages oh, to immediately thesis. fish out her thesis, yes. which I can't imagine would be on his nightstand otherwise. <laughs> he, he knows Scully's on the way, and he knows who she is. But it's kind of an odd thing that he knows she's a very serious science-based person, but he's still point-blank asking, do you believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? And is really disappointed when she says no. Yeah, you kind of would expect that somebody who's into all the sciences and in the actual film TV show, not even astronomy, yeah. would not be into this. Yes, but he, he's got faith. I mean, that's going to be one of the uh, major things going forward is faith. Going back to what you were saying about um, their dynamic and uh, Scully being the science-based person is, uh, at the time, it was a deliberate uh, inversion of the usual way of working that um, the woman would be the sceptic and the man would be the believer. Yes, you'd usually have the woman being airy-fairy crystal person in this case, whereas the man would be the staunch, educated, science-minded person. It should be noted as well, I think uh, Alex Hirsch was actually asked this about Gravity Falls and why Mabel and Dipper are the way around they are. He didn't reference the X-Files directly, but did point out that having them in reverse, so the girl was the believer, would be the dynamic from the 90s again, yeah, one the X-Files subverted. So we're going back the other way now. Well, no, we're not. We're still a good thing, because Dipper is a believer in Gravity Falls, isn't he? True, yeah. And Mabel isn't. Oh, yes, I see you going that. But yeah. Mabel is still the airy-fairy crystal person. Uh, yeah, Mabel is more the airy-fairy crystal person. So it's not, it's a, they were kind of a weirder mishmash than modern Scully would be. Mm-hmm. What does thing, I think, so Mulder shows her this slideshow, and Mulder's de- office decor, I think, needs some 
commenting on. Because this is this is an officer in the FBI, allegedly professional place. It's still the fact that Mulder has got, got a nest down here. And the thing that really sort of drives it home is the I want to believe poster, which most people will know full well. It's a case of, that's not decor, office, professional office decor. If you I haven't think- seen the poster before, it's kind of a blue background with I want to believe in stark white lettering and this kind of blurry picture of a flying saucer. The, the production team had to make up. It doesn't actually exist. I mean, it does now because they've made it so people can buy it, but they had to put it together themselves. Oh. So it, it was not a real poster before the exile. It's not the motivational poster it looks like. No, it's one that one they supposed to be made up. And it's also you want to say, I want to believe. But Morta doesn't want to believe. Morta does believe. True. So I think as we alluded to before, um, similar to the murder case that happened in uh, South Dakota and Texas, although we don't get into if there were groups of people for that and exactly how that relates back, it's kind of just that it's happened before. We yeah. Don't know how much of it has Even happened. later when they try to exhume the bodies, they've already been taken, presumably by the cancer man again. Yes. As he's got all of those nasal implants from somewhere yeah. at the end of the episode. Talking of the um, unidentified bodies in the grave, I thought it was interesting that the original teleplay with which the novella was based on implied these were something that the girls were giving birth to, that they were an offspring, not the bodies of the person. You have a weird thing in the novel where it infers that it doesn't have Billy Miles getting injured in the car accident, which is the reason in the episode that's given for his coma. Instead, he'd kind of disappeared after Peggy found out she was pregnant with his child. Yeah, and then came back much later and interviewed state. And uh, there's also talk of a doctor that's on an abortion and Scully's line of thought is what happens if it was talking to turn and she thinks of the body in the coffin. Yeah, but you don't get that in the finished episode no, at all. Yeah, You've just got to assume that based on whatever happens, either something has replaced Ray Holmes's body or more likely Ray Holmes has mutated into something else. Yeah, I think that's basically how we would interpret the finished episode. Though the reason for this is not given in the episode. It's very unclear what on earth is going on with that corpse, in fact. Indeed, and then it's burned and we never see it again. And you never see any of the other corpses because they're either exhumed or Mulder is not given permission to kind of go anywhere near them by the surviving families. Yep. Well, I mean, uh, jumping ahead about, I mean, we do, I do want to talk about the bit where they discover that the bodies are missing because it's it's the middle of the night, it's raining, and they're going to go to the graveyard to check on the other bodies. Because if you haven't got the construction crew you had earlier to unearth the bodies, you've just run into a graveyard. And when they find them, they've been perfectly exhumed. Yeah, and no one has noticed. Mm. Because I got protesters earlier in the episode, but no, they managed to exhume these bodies. That's Councilman's powers. That's Councilman's Well, assuming it is Councilman, I mean, because uh, this was one of my theories, at least, was in this first episode, at least, there's a sense of um, Mulder versus all other authority figures mm. and Scully alongside him. And it was a kind of weird, at least back in the 90s, watching other things where the FBI, Mulder always feels powerless in the X-Files, when, especially in this first episode where basically everything's stacked against him and he's fighting against the ongoing thing. But most other TV productions, if the FBI turn up, they'll just basically take control. They have absolute power. So it's kind of odd to see this breaking down of the power dynamic within the FBI. It's like there are structures of power within it. So you can be on the lowest rung of the FBI as well. Mm. Or you can be the people who know all the secrets. And get this guy who has no name, has no ID badge, and just sits in your office and smokes all day. It should be noted that in the novella, he does have a name. He does have a name. He is called something like Agent Jones. In the he's Agent, but he's an FBI agent, I think, they actually say. He is. He's an FBI agent. He's the one that introduces Scully to Mulder in the first place. And sits and through he, the slideshow. And sits through the slideshow, <laughs> yep. 
And throughout the episode, all the kind of bad things that happen to them, the fire and everything else, Scully is ardently convinced that it's most likely to be the coroner, or if not the detective. And it's only the final scene where it draws your attention to the fact that Agent Jones has a tray full of nasal implants that might infer the fact that it was actually him. Yes. I mean, that was my notion is that, again, the episode does try to drive home. It could be someone in town who's done the fire. But it's entirely possible that uh, the FBI has set someone to do this purely to discredit Mordor so they can get him doing what they want him to be doing. It's also, again, I'm taking this from the novel, so it should be taken with a pinch of salt. But when Scully points out it was probably the coroner, Mulder says, and what was his motive? And it's it's absolutely true. The coroner hates them and doesn't want them involved with his daughter, but has no motive to burn their evidence. Yes. I mean, it's also, when you get down down to it, it's also unclear what the motive of the uh, detective was as well. He's he's kind of trying to protect his son, we think, though he's going to try and murder him at the end. I think it's the whole, he doesn't want to think that his son's involved, but when he is, he will kill his son if it means saving the lives of other people. But it's the cover-up is a bit weird. It's a case of, why did you actually suppress these bits of evidence? I mean, what unless well, they could have been searched from on high, I suppose. We don't know the ins and outs of a conspiracy. We can kind of see the, the very faint edges of it. Again, point. in a series with a long-running conspiracy, which is what the X-Files is at its core, you can't reveal everything. No. It's just those threads to get people interested that hopefully will become something further down the line. Yes, and I think as a pilot, it works very well as it introduces um, our core cast. And I did reading a number of views, a lot of people made the point that Mulder and Scully switch into this dynamic very fast, which I think is partly that Holmes Watson dynamic mm. to begin with. But they play off each other really well. I mean, there is a chemistry between them right from the word go. The thing I thought was interesting rewatching it was basically until Mulder mentions that she's got to write a report, Scully is halfway converted to Mulder's way of thinking. She's ready to believe everything. Then he says, You've got to write a report, and she goes, Oh, yeah, I do, don't I? <laughs> I've got to justify Let's this to someone. Let's make it make sense, then. I've got to justify this to someone, even though I... She actually believes for a moment. And it's, it's kind of... I think it, it's presumably meant to be foreshadowing of how she's going to develop over time. You have the fact that Scully, I think, is a genuinely nice human being as well. So when Mulder gives his backstory about the abduction of his sister and the hypnotherapies had to recall this, Scully doesn't just outright call it bullshit. Yes. Scully does... Not necessarily believe that aliens did it, but she believes that he saw something. Yes, there was there was some event happened. Mm. Uh, though I, I'm going to have to sort of challenge you a bit on Scully being a fun person, nice person, because I know this is one of your favourite <laughs> notices. Is Scully's absolutely appalling bedside manner mm. for a medically trained doctor? She is so bad at this. To be fair, it fits in more as the fact that Mulder is the person with the kind of background in psychology. Therefore, yeah. any scene, and you see it first in this episode where. Anyone has to talk to somebody, especially a child or somebody who's maybe kind of mentally ill or something yeah. like that. Mulder is really good with them and Scully has zero bedside manner. Uh, accumulating in this episode of Scully, medical doctor, referring to somebody in a coma as a vegetable. Yes. It's, <laughs> and the fact that she just freaks out when Peggy falls out of the wheelchair. Yep. Scully doesn't actually know first aid. I am convinced of this fact. She's very good at autopsies, weirdly. She's very good at autopsies, despite being, again, a trained medical doctor. With an undergrad in physics. But has no bedside manner and can't administer first aid. Uh, Okay, so one thing I did notice as well very early on is Mulder's sort of sense of humour. Kind of stops the episode getting wholly depressing or wholly tense, because, you know, it's it's a release valve. Mm. I mean, these these examples that keep coming back, it's it's actually really different, but it's like, like, do you remember the first time we watched Twin Peaks? And I had to keep saying, 
just stick with it, and you're going through the first ha- half an hour, first oh. hour of Laura Palmer's death. Laura Palmer's death is so bleak, and everyone's crying. <laughs> and everyone's crying. Yeah. It's a case of, no, stick with it, stick with it, it's going to get good. And then, like a... a Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper comes in. And talking to Denise in his damn fine cup of coffee. Yeah. yeah. I'm not thinking, no, Denise is um, David Coffney's character. Oh, it's, I'm sorry. Um, um, whatever his Diane. Kind of, Diane is Diane PA. is the person yeah. who will later be played by Laura Dern, of all people. Oh, really? Yes, she was in the revival. That was um, Denise, ah, after all that. There you go. And then she was a traitor. Connected sorry, trivia. spoilers if you haven't seen the revival of Twin Peaks, but, you know. So, um, the woods as a supernatural location, I thought, worked very well. I mean, anyone who's been out in the woods in the middle of the night, especially in reduced numbers... It gets really spooky very fast. I mean, we had the experience when we went to Alton Towers and decided we didn't want to walk along the busy road, so we'd take the uh, disused railway track. The track had been pulled up, so this is like a footpath now. Through some woods, back to um, the motel. Probably it's about 10 o'clock at night. Probably about 10 o'clock at night. It's not that dark, or it doesn't feel like it should be that dark yet, but it the light levels dropped a lot faster than we expected to, and it got increasingly unnerving going through there. Especially as Alton has its landmarks like trees kind of wrapped in chains and stuff like that yeah, to so add can, to your creepiness. Imagine a chained oak, but but even just walking down a just corridor of trees, it's really unnerving. And we regretted that every time we did it, and we did it more than once because we're not very sensible people. Yeah, it does feel like, and um, this is how I'm going to die, sort of territory. We were perfectly safe, obviously, but it yes, it's just something about the woods at night in any kind of limited capacity. The kind is of unnerving. Silence and the increased, well, decreased visibility. Yeah. Which also goes to show that in case of Billy Mars' class decided to come out to this woods in for graduation and celebrate. In case of, what were you doing? Because by their count, there's like seven of them. Yeah, there must be at least seven. Yeah. So, <laughs> seven people in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night. I presume it's that horror movie trope in America where teenagers always gather around bonfires and things like that. Yeah, which I suppose would be... Um, it's not something we do in the UK because it is raining 97% of the time. <laughs> That's true. The woods uh, the woods make a really good spooky backdrop. And um, I, I vaguely remember when first time watching this, it, it was inherent tension because you're not sure what you're going to see. One thing I did find out looking at the X-Files was uh, there's actually a mandate from Chris Carter of um, no aliens would be depicted in series one. Okay. So instead we get a chimpanzee alien-looking corpse that is definitely not an alien. We, we get something. We're not sure what it is. It's mm. mammalian, but we don't know what it is. But it's an interesting production thing that I wasn't aware of. So um, not knowing this means uh, this episode I'm very tense because you're not sure what you're going to see. No, true. You also have the concept in this episode, as I think Billy Miles says it during his hypnosis at the end, is that the woods drew him in. Yes. So even Billy is not identifying a kind of alien. He's saying the woods drew him. Yes. What is in the woods is the question. Yes. I thought that was actually interesting, because looking at the Wikipedia summary, um, they say that he explicitly says aliens abducted him. He doesn't. He actually just says they came, and the experiments and the testing place. He's very vague on the details of exactly what did this to him. Mm. We as an audience infer it's aliens. And so does Mordor, obviously, and the FBI people who observe. But... It's purely through your outside knowledge of, okay, there's a bright light, there are people being taken away, there's tests being run, gotta be aliens. Yeah. And your point about the woods as a mysterious force, though, is interesting, given the fact that you've got weird phenomenon before uh, any kind of ship or alien turns up, because you've got the radio going haywire when they drive past the woods, which causes Mulder to draw the X. It's a case of, the aliens are terrible at stealth, apparently, just hanging out somewhere nearby and interfering with the radios when it could be 
in orbit. To be fair, and again, I am going to give this episode leeway for it's forming the basis of a conspiracy. We don't want it to answer any questions. Oh, we don't. But lost time in this episode is what on earth are the aliens doing? Is these aliens can apparently kidnap kids and do experiments on them, but for some reason they can't return to kill them. They need to kind of bilocate a person who is otherwise in a coma into the middle of a forest and kind of empower him to kill people for them. Well, it's not even clear if that's what's happening. because And also there's some lost time while this goes on, but it's unclear why. Yes, the, well, the lost time is very confusing. Well, the other, I actually took a different thing from the episode, which is the fact that uh, physical ailments are being turned off or something. So like Piggy was running and she ran in front of a truck when she got hit by it, being called into the woods. So I don't think they can bilocate. I think they actually have to walk out there, stupidly. But time only spots for, does Mulder say, six minutes or nine something? Minutes. Nine, nine minutes. minutes. How enough. far are these kids going to get in I nine minutes? Know. Is this kind of mental hospital in the middle of the woods? I, I think this is one of these other things of it's done for tension. It's not done for actually kind of coherency because it's like any more than nine minutes, you're going to get people are going to notice that kind of thing happening. Because it seems to be a worldwide thing because the nurse at the hospital says she can't remember what she's watching at ten past nine. But it doesn't need to be a worldwide thing at there because it's located on Billy Miles. Oh, I know. But it's still. I suppose you could take on that basis of it's maybe not happening ever at the same time. It's following Billy Miles or something, so the world stopped around him. It could be. We don't. We don't know how it works. We know that they got caught up in it. Um, But I don't. It's also not clear if Billy's actually doing the killing because he's taking the body, standing in the middle of a bright light in the middle of the woods. There's whirling winds. But again, when Mulder interrupts this process, when he stops um, Sheriff, not Sheriff, Detective Miles from shooting Billy, the aliens just give up and they never come back. Apparently. There is, there is a suggestion of a craft, though, because there's something upwards. There's something that's casting light downwards. Yes, they anyway. set up at something. Mm. It's not clear what that was, and we infer it's naming ship, but we don't know for sure that's what it is. Though it's interesting that Mulder's sister hasn't got a name. We've just She's very just a, a very vague concept now of his sister was abducted by something. Mm. You have the kind of pi- uh, things put into place after Mulder's regression hypnosis, anyway, of... His sister and he shared a room. He was the older of the two. Um, there was a bright light and he had got a sense of another presence in the room, but again, didn't see the entity or person doing this. Yeah. And then his sister was gone. Uh, the book weirdly gets into this a bit more with his family putting out a lot of effort and money to try and find her again. Yes, he comments the fact on his parents pulled out no stops to find yeah. the sister. Yes, though I think the uh, the actual episode has a kind of ruined the family, I think he says. Yeah. So, possibly we'll get more and more of the family later on. There, he also makes mention of a higher authority who's break, uh, blocking his access to some um, some very badly defined government files. He comments the fact of he's got one benefactor, I think, and yes. that's the reason he's been able to go on this far. A connection in Congress. Okay, so it's not a con- not really a conspiracy at all, but I thought your point was actually quite good the other day when you just said, uh, the nurse who changes Billy's bedpan in this case of Billy is in a waking coma. Not someone who can usually use bedpans. Yeah, I must admit, I'm no expert in the matter, but that's just something I thought was jarring. Uh, It's kind of... It's not even really an indication that Billy isn't in a coma, because I presume that it might be noted if your patient in a coma was getting up every night to use his bedpan. Yes. Well, but you'd think if someone was in a coma, they'd have them on a catheter or something like that. I, I would expect so, I mean... So Mulder's throwaway comment about her cleaning out his bedpans and her... Not pointing out that this is ridiculous. Well, I think she actually volunteers you to his bedpan, so I think it does come from her. Have these doctors not noticed that this coma patient is apparently getting up to use the loo every night? Well, he gets up to use the loo, and then basically runs off to the woods to help the aliens 
kill people, and I don't know why they need him to do that, and he comes back again. Again, we've got to assume that this is a thread that's going to be picked up later. Yes, that's perfect. As we're watching this with no hindsight whatsoever, that the reasons why the aliens need to essentially mind control a teenager to do their dirty work for them. It, it's an odd choice. Scully making the connection between the ash in the forest and Billy's feet is at least a good way of looping them together. Although I would suspect that the FBI might look askance when Scully says, oh, we lost the original sample, we'll go get more. It's a case of, aren't people going to say this is the chain of... I think chain of evidence is very important in cases. True. And that feels like it could be something that could be used against her. But that's at least... It's, we need to move the episode on, so basically we need to go back to the woods for the final confrontation, which I think we've been over a few times now. One thing I will say about the aliens right at the end here, or sorry, the, 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 the woods or the force, is um, not only does it, for some reason, not kill Teresa, for reasons that don't actually make any sense, it then removes the marks from her and Billy, and presumably that inorganic substance, and we don't know why they did that either. You also don't know about the nasal implant, because they no. never seem to examine Billy and say they've removed his or anything like no, that. No, it is an odd one. It's a case of why didn't they just order x-rays of Billy Miles and Peggy? Mm. I think the book Not at least... Peggy, Teresa. Teresa, sorry. Oh, and Peggy as well. Peggy's the one who dies in the car accident. Yeah, but they could when they went to the hospital the first time, they could have got x-rays of her too. Oh, true. I think uh, the book actually makes clear that Detective Miles is interceding in some point in Billy's care, and presumably that would be seen as where Mortal's being deterred from doing these things. Mm. And it, it could be that basically we're just looking at a... Um, over, trying to get in the essential elements of the plot has meant that these other things have been missed out. It's certainly the kind of people in power are aggressive in the episode but in the book they're even more so yes they're even more antagonistic towards Mulder at every stage of this investigation it was also the townsfolk being riled up as well which is an album that doesn't come through in the episode yeah that's true when they first arrive in the town in the book there is like a kind of angry mob waiting for them essentially yes. just, and Mulder just leaves Scully to offend with them while he goes in to talk to the to the um the new autopsy person because it's a different doctor yes that's right as previously noted, the book is quite different. It, it follows the same plot, but there are key areas where it varies quite wildly. Yeah, I mean, if we're not meant to be doing a little criticism podcast here, but I thought the book was actually pretty badly written in places. It is aimed at middle graders. That's not even one of the young adult novels. Oh, no, but it's even a case of, it seemed to me that it, it was a very blunt description of what the events were. There wasn't a lot of care or... No moulding of the text into making you things You did legal. get more of people's kind of thought process, though, particularly Scully's, as it was kind of following her <laughs> yes. kind of opinions of Mul uh, internal opinions on Mulder. I'd have to better. say, I think a lot of that was interpolated, because a lot of that case of, that's not how she reacted in the episode. My favourite bit in the story was how it described the characters. I think oh, yes. <laughs> there was a comment about Scully saying something like, despite the fact she was pretty, she was also very intelligent or something like that. <laughs> I know you're VJ for Mulder. Uh, uh, yeah, Mulder, it commented about his hair being longer than the FBI light, making him look more like an MTV VJ, which is not words I'd ever used to describe David Duchovny. No, I mean, presumably at that point he hadn't been cast. Then again, I think the book was written way afterwards, so it's one of those whole, I'm not sure why... It it's was way after. The original hmm. editions of the book, um, it should be noted that there are actually two series of these books. Some of them are middle-grade novels. A middle-grade reader is usually aged between 8 and 12, uh, these novels tend to have photorealistic covers with just pictures of uh, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson on them. And then there was a separate series with kind of quite pretty artsy covers that were aimed at young adult readers. Uh, these are usually for the kind of more violent episodes and stuff like that. So they were aimed at people over the age of 13. 
So this one, X Marks the Spot, is one of the middle grade novels as it's more harmless. At the end of the episode, though, um, as we've said before, we get that sort of hint at a wider conspiracy or at least the implant. We know the implants aren't unique because Mulder introduced it like that at the start, but the fact that there is a force in the government and it's also entwined with the military in the form of the Pentagon because that's where Cancer Man uh, deposits the implant at the end of the episode. This unnamed guy who's just been... Uh, who is literally a man in black in the classic sense, is just hanging around in the FBI offices, observing. You get the idea as well as that Scully might not understand these full implications. Is She feels a bit like she's been brought on this to kind of rehabilitate Mulder, a kind of savant psychoanalyst whose skills are going to waste, where in actuality what the kind of board is trying to do is shut down the X-Files. Yes. Uh, I, think this, I think this was Mulder's last shot. This case of if she produced a report saying the man is a fantasist or he's got, you know, looking for little green men or something, they'd say, Mulder, no, we're shutting this down. You're going back to the violent crimes division. But also the fact that deep down, and we don't understand why yet, there is a reason why they want the X-Files shut down. Yes, it's not just because Mulder's wasting his talents. It's because he's poking his nose in something that people don't want him to look at. Which is your connection again with the Ministry of Defense, if that's what you call it in America. Ministry of Pentagon, I think. The Pentagon, just, the yeah. Department of Defense. Department of Defense, that's it, yeah. Uh, and we get to our wonderful kind of, and this is where the Red Lost Ark idea came from, is the big warehouse full of evidence in the case of you see what's in one box, one Earth is in all the rest of them, which is a big dangling thread that we might get later. You've got this one tiny box that's full of nasal implants and then the rest of this warehouse-style yeah. room inside the Pentagon. Okay, so have you got anything else on this episode, or shall we go to Kim's Conspiracy Corner? Oh, I get to summarise conspiracies. You get to summarise the conspiracy, unless you've got any other notes. Uh, I think you've gone through all my notes for this episode so far. Okay, so okay, so cool, it's time for Kim's Conspiracy Corner. So, what are the aliens up to this week? Uh, and uh, for everyone who's listening, I want you to imagine this is a Pepe Sylvia situation. We have an enormous wall it's kind of empty at the moment, but it's like got a little bit of paper on it, which has got the summary for this episode. Over time, we'll connect it with Red Yarn, and then right, you know, just dial Peppy Sylvia across it in black lettering, just for the full effect, just to get the conspiracy thing going. For now, though, we've only got one sheet of paper, but anyway, Kim, take it away. Okay, in this episode, we have learned that aliens can control time to some sort of degree. They will pause time in order to kill teenagers that have previously been associated with them, but we have no idea why. I kind of like previously associated with aliens. Uh, there is a forest that is portrayed as a sinister entity. This forest is connected with what we assume are aliens, at least the abducting force in some way. Specifically, we're told the forest draws people to it, but we don't have an indication of what is in the forest that is causing this. We have the fact that people who have been abducted by aliens somehow mutate after death, as seen by the chimpanzee-ish corpse inside Ray Soames' grave. Uh, the aliens also put these little implants into their nasal cavities. We assume on the basis of Billy Miles these can be used to control people, but we have no idea what other functions they cause. We also have the concept of the aliens with the power to stop time but they can only act through other people. For some reason, they can abduct people and experiment on them, but they don't seem to be able to otherwise interfere or indeed kill them to kind of cover their tracks. So I think that's about all the basis we can go. On that basis, we also know the fact that the government is somehow aware of this. They've got their vast bunker of contraband stuff that they don't want the rest of the world to know about. And for that reason, they want to shut down the X-Files as they now have someone competent who's poking into this. 
Would you say there's anything more to add? I think that's a fair. Two two confident people. So one confident person and one that uh, was that you meant? You mean Scully? Uh, no, I meant Mulder. It's the fact yeah, that yeah. Scully otherwise would not be involved in this. Scully is essentially their tool to debunk Mulder. Yeah, but to their detriment, they've now got someone competent. It's going to look at it. Okay, so anything, anything else you'd like to talk about, or have we covered everything? I think we've covered everything. We've been going quite a while now. We have been going quite a while. Uh, thank you, everyone who hung on to listen to us. Um, we'd, we'd actually like to hear from you if you were part of the Exiles fandom back in the day. Um, neither of us were exactly internet savvy or used the internet much at the time of the initial broadcast. I mean, you were seven, and uh, I was on a very slow modem. If and probably actually, no, I don't think we even had a modem at that point in time. So no, no modem, no internet connection at all. We are faintly aware that the X Files had an online presence, especially on things like Usenet and uh, various mailing lists. And so I'm, I am curious about what the developing experience was like, how people were designing theories or what theories people were coming out with at the time, how people thought various elements of the show were going to sort of fit together, and how close was any of that to what actually ended up happening? Were you close? Were you off base? Did you have better concepts than the books I was wound up with? So please let us know. Uh, our email address is thingsaregettingstrange42 at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter. We're at getstrange42. Anything else you'd like to say before we end? No, I think that's everything. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, going forward, we're going to try and look at two episodes per one of these podcasts where possible and kind of grouping them together where not and maybe just looking at the movies in isolation. So for next episode, we'll be looking at season one, episodes two and three, which are respectively called Deep Throat and Squeeze. Our theme music currently is Envisioned by Kevin MacLeod, which you can find on in coppertech.com. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, the truth is out there. there.